0: Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? Harry Maguire versus Johnny Evans. Oh, Johnny Evans. Harry Maguire Go. versus Steve Bruce? Steve Bruce. Harry Maguire versus Wes Brown? Wes Brown all day. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. We're going to turn to the Sunday papers now. Very happy to say in studio we have Kleena Foley. Great to see you again. You too
1: too. How
0: you've been over the last couple of years.
1: Hanging in there like everybody
0: else. <laughs> and Sarah O'Donovan with us as well. All-Ireland winning camogie player. Sarah, great to have you on. Hi,
1: guys.
2: How's
0: it going? Great. I'll start with the front pages just to give people a sense of what's out there, what's leading the way. We have a picture of Sadio Mane uh, yesterday at Anfield, a 1-0 win for Liverpool. The headline in the Sunday Times here is over to you, City. And also on the Sunday Times front page, Tuchel, he says Chelsea fans wrong to chant for Branvish during the minutes applause for Ukraine. Sunday independent they have a picture of the hurling game last night this was Galway against Cork a win for Cork. Rebels rising is the headline Cork maintain winning run to see off tribesmen and beneath that in one of the great tell us something we don't knows United can't afford any more mistakes as Ralph Rangnick he says they need to stop making mistakes in the transfer market over the next couple of years if they want to have any chance of catching Chelsea and Liverpool. The mail on Sunday then. The main picture is of Cork and Galway last night. Revitalized Rebels scorch into league semi-finals. Cork 126. Galway 23 points. So a six-point win for Cork last night. Tragedy, obviously, for the Shefflin family, very much overshadowing that game, and our condolences to all concerned. Beneath that, though, they have Thomas Tuchel, Don't Be Dumb, is the headline. Thomas Tuchel Blasts Chelsea fans over Kras Abramovich chance is how the Mail presented. Sunday World, with a different approach on their back page. Eric the Great. So they are saying that Eric Ten Hag is now emerging as the top target for the Manchester United hot seat. We have the Sun. Uh, celebrations there for Klopp. Klopp giving City a run for their money. And beneath that shame is the headline. Tuchel raps Blues fans here on the back page of The Sun. The Abramovich chant Mars applause for Ukraine is how The Sun presented. Sunday Mirror also going with that story and it's a picture of Thomas Tuchel. No respect is the headline. Boss Tuchel blasts Chelsea fans as they chant Abramovich's name during Ukraine solidarity applause. And there is also an interview with Alexander Zinchenko And I suspect he's not the only Ukrainian who feels this way and feels very conflicted and torn. He says, part of me feels like I should be there alongside my compatriots. So they are the uh, back pages of the various papers. Klina, it wasn't utterly shocking, but it was even a touch surprising that so many Chelsea fans decided to chant uh, Roman Abramovich's name during a 60 second moment of recognition for what the Ukrainians are going through. They couldn't even observe that 60 seconds. I, I no doubt they would have chanted Abramovich's name across the course of the afternoon, but yeah, to do it during did, that I 60, think, yeah. yeah, actually they yeah. did, but that 60 seconds, that was quite something pathetic really.
1: Yeah, but it, I suppose, you know, it, it, this is, the past week has interested, I think, anybody who, who has a passion for sport in that we have seen um, the organising bodies of sport maybe finally get a conscience or at least own up to having some conscience but you don't you always expect that of individual fans, you know, because the word fan comes from fanatics. So, <laughs> but uh, I th- and I thought, you know, the it, the, in, it, the Sunday Times also has uh, two pictures of of I suppose what shows the double, quadruple, or multiple different standards that we apply in sport. When um, they have a photo of the a banner that was flown over uh, Slaggenhoff Courtzoma. Um, over the alleged, the, not the alleged, the incident with the with cruelty to the cats and it has, cat, you know, uh, their banner was over playing with Cats Lives Matter and there was a huge um, a huge uh, mask of a cat on uh, in the grounds yesterday so you, sometimes you just, you know, you you, you just have to laugh at, that, I suppose, the different standards and the mm-hmm. multiple contradictions and things but this has been a week I think where, you know, and the papers are full of it today, really looking at um, and the Abramovich one is really, you know, that the, sort of uh, the double standards that apply in sport in terms of who invests in it. You know, who do we who do, who who do we give major organ, uh, competitions to? You know, how well are they vetted? You know, what are we prepared to look beyond? Um, and so there's loads of that in the papers today it's some interesting stuff.
0: You could argue really the short version or the short answer to your question is whoever has the money.
1: Because hasn't it always been thus? You know, but there has I think I think the Abramovich one is of particular interest because, and I I've read some really good stuff in the past few days as well, and been thinking about it. It's because he was the one who has, if you like, you know, created the opportunity for the Petro clubs and for all of that huge investment. It was it was his success with Chelsea that has attracted the money um, from some so many big you know billionaires into. Premiership football so there's a big argument about you know as he as he leaves Chelsea what has he left behind what's the legacy the legacy is this huge us and them you know which is evident even I was in Russia in 2006 for the world indoor championships Darvill Darv- won the gold medal and I happened to be staying way way out in Moscow it's the only time I've ever been to Russia uh, out in the suburbs and um I went out, it was snowing very heavily, and I went out, there was a local market on and there they they were people in their 80s selling the springs from pencil from pens to, to, to try to get some money in the little local market sitting in the snow. And then I got the chance during the weekend to pop down to see Red Square. And Red Square used to have this big official um, Russian uh, estate shop there. I think it was called Gum, and it's now designer from one end to the other. And just the contrast between that when you're in a country like Russia and then you think about how sport works and, you know, giving Russia the World Cup and all those sort of things, you know, it is it is shocking sometimes. Felt the same, really, I think, in Rio, at the Olympics in Rio, when you, on your way to major stadiums, looked up and saw the favelas and saw the poverty and also saw so much investment by the state. And we used to come home every night on the motorway back to where we were staying. And I remember the last night. On every single motorway bridge, there was a tank and soldiers. And just to see that the state investment in these big things and the, and the use of armies, you know, uh, for protection around sporting and sport organisations, you know, to further the reputation of the country, it's very it is very upsetting. And, and we're all we can all we're all complicit in it if mm. we work in sport.
0: Uh, Tuchel's comments, just if you didn't catch them, by the way, he said of the Chelsea fans during that minute's applause, it was not the moment to do this, to sing Abramovich's name. If we show solidarity, we show solidarity and we show it together. And there was a very hostile reaction in Turf Moor after that moment from the Burnley fans. And Tuchel said, "Uh, we show respect as a club. We need our fans to commit to this minute of applause in the moment that we do it for Ukraine. There's no second opinion about the situation there. And they have our thoughts and our support and we should stand together as a club. It was not the moment for other messages. It just speaks, Sarah, to an idiocy, frankly. That's all you can say.
2: And looking at Conor McGregor, deciding that he might buy Chelsea speaks to further idiocy. You know, this is the kind of conversations that we've been having this week because there has been so many different entities buying into sport. There doesn't seem to be a framework for for actual, you know, a, a structure, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to consider buying a club. That that, that would be my first thought. Uh, you know, were, were either of you surprised that Conor McGregor was tweeting during the week that he might consider buying Chelsea?
1: <laughs> no, I... I frankly I laughed at the notion as well but McGregor has you know been been in in Putin's in Putin's uh, company before just as former head of the Irish Olympic Committee Pat Hickey has been as well so you know there's a there's a circle of power there around sport that you just see all the time the thing that 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 also makes me say as well on that is that like there is a if there is a there is a a thing in british football about you know fitness to own a club and that but i mean that yes. i've never looked at that in any great detail have you joe but I, I would be really interested to look at that when you look at some of the owners that have come into it. Well, it uh, certainly
0: doesn't make any they great to play it, aren't they? when it comes to things like human rights or anything yeah, in that yeah. department. If anything, it's but just they, more of a legal test and it's I, a more I, I, of a financial test.
1: Yeah, I, thought I, I, th- I th- thought I heard somewhere during the week that they're now going to add a human rights thing to it. You would have thought that that should be in there before, as indeed you would think it should be in the International Olympic Charter as well. Well,
0: they're talking about it. Right. I remain sceptical. Right. For instance, I thought on um, page eight on the Sunday Times, Jonathan Northcroft, he had the quotes from Amanda Staveley during the week yeah. where she was almost talking about poor Roman Abramovich, you know, an innocent victim in all of this. So Staveley, of course, is part of the company that brought in the Saudi PIF to Newcastle and she is with the company that have a 10% stake in the club capital partners. So she was saying you're always going to have geopolitical issues. The world is never going to not have problems. I'm really sad today that someone's going to have a football club taken away because of a relationship that they have with someone. I don't think it's especially fair. And obviously the Saudis were much criticised when they arrived into Newcastle. He
1: he gets a great quote in in this, Joe, as well, because he quotes her and it's just exactly what you hear all the time. Uh, he quotes her saying, I'd rather everybody look and get excited about football than be involved in war. So if we can create great content, yeah. and that was the line that, you know, how, how often are we hearing that now? You know, and that's the he, he finishes with that line. There's great content to create. and wouldn't be nice if everybody got excited about football rather than being involved in war. That's the line he finishes on. It's a very good piece, but that that's the killer line. And that is the line that betrays... Um, so much truth about, you know, investment in sport and what and what uh, what people are now doing with sport.
0: Eamon Sweeney and David Walsh address this yeah. whole area and their respective back pages of the Mail on Sunday and the Sunday Independence. So Eamon Sweeney quotes the German broadcaster DW who had a great headline. I haven't seen this. And the headline was after legitimizing Putin, sport criticizes Russia which is a brilliant summation of the last 20 plus years. Even as bombs rained down on Ukrainian civilians, FIFA and the International Paralympic Committee thought they could get away with allowing Russian teams to compete once they didn't do so under their national flag. That is a point worth making because people outside of sport, I'm listening to them on various current affairs shows, are uh, doffing their cap to FIFA. FIFA were railroaded into doing this by several football associations who refused to play Russia. So FIFA deserve next to no credit here. And Eamon Sweeney points out the history of Putin and sport, that Russia hosted the 2013 World Athletics Championships, the 2014 Winter Olympics, the 2018 World Cup. Asked last week if he regretted praising Putin so lavishly, Gianni Infantino waffled about sport bringing people together. And Eamon Sweeney makes a point which I think uh, reflects badly on all of us, uh, present company included, for not calling out this even more, although... Uh, To a large extent, I feel sports washing has been called out, but he points out the invasion of Ukraine may be shocking, but Russia's behavior is hardly surprising. 2016-17, as teams fought to qualify for Putin's World Cup, Russian planes bombed the Syrian city of Aleppo, killing several thousand civilians. The Syrian war has seen around 160,000 civilians killed and created six and a half million refugees. It is the great humanitarian disaster of our times and largely the responsibility of Bashar al-Assad, backed by Russia amongst others. And yeah, he talks about the fact that the World Cup happened and the Sochi Games happened and people reported about what a great time they were having in uh, Russia. Quite a few uh, Russians are seeking uh, cover in vague statements about peace, which studi- studiously avoid blaming Putin or their own country. Such statement statements are meaningless, akin to uh, I want peace, he says, is akin to the Russian, it's the Russian equivalent of all lives matter. So, uh, look, the history of sport investing, or sorry, of uh, tyrants investing in sport is, uh, you know, outlaid there and we've known about it for a long time. It just seems, Sarah, kind of hopeless because as much as it's mentioned, sports fans are never going to boycott these events and sporting organisations are never going to turn down the money. So, like, I've no doubt that another 15, 20 years similar issues will arise again I would think
2: That's why governments are so attracted to sport is because the ordinary man is never going to leave his sport and And if they seem that they're involved and engaged and supporting these, these sports players then the ordinary man will essentially row in so it's not until something really drastic and horrendous and awful like this week in Ukraine comes you know into our televisions and onto our into our sitting rooms that we can't deny that this is awful and and we have to stand up but it has been a long time as you say it's been a long time coming you know we, we have been studiously skirting around sports washing and i know a number of weeks ago i was talking to you about saudi arabia and the golf and shane lowry and you know i had a very difficult i suppose conversation with myself about where i stood with with shane supporting golf in saudi arabia and and here we are a number of weeks later and something else has completely escalated.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, if Eamon Sweeney mentions about, about uh, the, as, uh, in 2016, 2017, when they were trying, teams were trying to qualify for the World Cup, he talks about Russians bombing the Syrian city of Aleppo. And I know a man, an Irish man, married to a Ukrainian woman. And actually, that's the text he sent me during the week was he said he's, he's trying, they're trying to do an Aleppo on, uh, on uh, Kiev. Mm. And he told me his 15 year old godson back in Ukraine had gone to sign up for the army, mm. which, you know, really brings it home to you. Um, but it, like I've o- like in the, in recent years, particularly often, I've often said, and particularly televised sport, I mean, to paraphrase it, I do think it is the opium of the masses, you know, because there's so much of it. We're so absorbed in it, you know, every single hour, everywhere you go, televised sport is on um, and as it has grown, you know, sometimes you think political awareness has shrunk you know in direct, <laughs> in direct opposition to it and, and all of these things are used but like the, you know you go back to not, you go back to 36 you go back to the Berlin Olympics you know I mean it's a classic case of it and, and you know this isn't this isn't new it is just I think that the cost of hosting international sport and the way it's run now has grown so much also the cost of you know running major sports teams has become so much that there's even less questions asked sometimes yeah. about who's involved, and I would, I would, you know, say we ca- we can't wash our hands of it either. And I, you know, I look at 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 Sheikh, B- uh, MacToom with the Irish racing. You know, somebody who has been up in court for his, the treatment of his daughters. You know, you would ask questions there as well. So it is that is that is the situation. Is the cost, which is so much, David Walsh's line as well is though that individual people have to. You know, he he is kind of calling on individual athletes to to speak out. And uh, he's very critical of the fact that um, Medvedev hasn't
0: yet. Yeah, Yeah, David Walsh, I mean, he echoes, it's a similar theme to Eamon Sweeney in part because he talks about the way Russia has used sport in the midst of doing terrible things away from the sporting arena. So four years ago, we were in Russia for the World Cup. At At the time, Russia had annexed Crimea was embroiled in a terrible conflict in Syria. In Moscow, political opponents and journalists were murdered as the Kremlin saw fit. Three months before that World Cup, two Russians came to England and attempted to assassinate Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia using the nerve agent Novichok. The government accused Russia of the crime. 153 diplomats expelled. Then the World Cup happened and visitors to the country were impressed by the level of organisation and the hospitality of ordinary Russians. This is how sports washing it uh, works and,
1: and we had it in Beijing, you know, yeah. recently and we'll have it in the World Cup this year, the soccer World Cup again this year. As so well.
0: the the Russian thing is is very striking in that the West at large, beyond just sport, embraced Russian money. Moscow and Thames and just a general sense of globalisation was happening. And now overnight, Putin has become utterly toxic. And so that one crept up on people a touch, now only a touch. Everybody knew it was effectively a dictatorship. And there was just a degree of hoping, I think, that things didn't ever escalate to the extent they have this week. So there's the Russian situation, but take Qatar and the World Cup. Mm. It's my sense, Sarah, that people are, one, incredibly aware of what's going on in Qatar. They find the whole thing abhorrent. They know about how the World Cup bidding process worked as well. Uh, They don't suspect that the rights of migrant workers has improved. And yet people feel powerless to improve that situation. It's just uh, motoring on towards December. FIFA haven't really done much about it in so much as anyone can see. And come the World Cup, we'll all probably watch the matches, but we'll all say as well what a disgrace it's been. And then it'll be January and it'll be behind us.
2: Where do we step in? And, you know, everyone's lives are affected by making stances and, and, and people are nearly tired and exhausted from putting up their hand and saying, you know i think this is wrong and, and how do we stop this so that so we just kind of get from month to month we just roll into the next event and and it as you say it's going to creep up on us and all of a sudden we're going to say god that that's ugly you know and and reading here about the migrants being underpaid not being paid the stadium is you know being pushed along and, and it will be delivered but at what cost i don't know which one of us has the power to be able to stand up and, and make enough noise. And how much noise do we need? It seems overwhelming sometimes to say, how am I going to make an impact here? And I wonder, is that at a global level, people are exhausted from trying to make an impact? I, mean,
0: I, th- I think some may boycott it, not enough to hurt the viewing figures. Ultimately, it's just so demoralising that FIFA don't care. You know, FIFA should be the ones who are organising this tournament and who would say, well, we've seen the abuses highlighted, therefore we're going to make a stand that's not going to happen. So where do you go? I mean, the people running the game should be ashamed of themselves in so many ways. On Medvedev clean, I'm curious for your thoughts on this. So we've seen all the Russian teams effectively expelled from world competition. What do we do about the individuals competing? Like David Walsh makes the argument, for instance, that uh, Medvedev hasn't really said very much about the situation. He says, Rublev, who's six in the world, has. He said, no war, please, down the lens of a TV camera. And he says that Putin would not have been amused. He says, in the same week, though, Medvedev played in Mexico, released a statement that talked about peace without mentioning the war in Ukraine. And he wore a red, blue and white T-shirt, which looked remarkably like a Russian team shirt at a time when his country's army was inside Ukraine. It didn't seem like a coincidence. And Walsh says, I wouldn't object to Rublev, who said what he said down the lens at Wimbledon. Medvedev, though, would not be welcome. I don't know, can we go down that route of judging, well, who took the strongest moral stance, who said enough to allow them into Wimbledon. I think it has to be uh, yeah, an all or nothing rule. Yeah. And I don't know what I, I instinctively. And that's why it's I easier to do it in team sport, isn't it? Team yeah. sport's easy because you're re- yeah. you're representing the team. You're yeah. So you're representing the country yeah. or you're representing the league. As individuals, you can't change where you were born. So where, very, where are you on the likes of a Medvedev playing at Wimbledon?
1: I, I again, I think it's up to Wimbledon to make that decision, and I can't see them making banning banning any players. Any you know, no, yeah. because we know we we already know that international tennis, you know, has a very unusual relationship with uh, with China. You know, as we saw with that case this year already yeah. with Peng Chu So, like you you you, it's up to everybody else. It's up to people to have a con- have a conscience. You know, but money overrules conscience is the reality. Uh, I, I was interested. I was I was talking to. Um, uh, one of the Irish rowers this week, Emir Lam, and I was asking her because she, she was, uh, the international rowing body has banned the Russians and the Ukrainians from competitions. So, and I said to her, you know, wh- how do you, where does that sit with you? And she said, well, you know, I have thought about this a lot and I think, I think I feel sorry for their individual athletes, mm-hmm. but then I turn on the television and I think what they're going to suffer is far less than the people in Ukraine. Mm. But I think that's the bottom line.
0: Yeah. Sarah, the argument against punishing individuals, I suppose, is that with team events, it is representative of the country in a very uh, visceral way. And certainly for club teams, you could move club. You can't quite do that if you want to play for the Russian national team. So there is a logic to extending it to individuals as well. Where are you on extending it to, say, tennis players or anyone who's pursuing an individual sport? And obviously they can't change where they're from.
2: I think right now, due to the seriousness of the situation in Ukraine, it shouldn't be a case that any Russian citizens are involved in any kind of international sport or involved in media or perceived to be successful. Because right now, the only issue in Russia is the invasion of Ukraine. And until the invasion is ended and you know peace is restored, then I don't see how we can go about our daily lives you know, supporting, reading, re- reviewing Russians playing sport, or you know, or or being involved in public life, because right now the biggest concern is Ukraine,
1: and and plus Sarah, you know, we we know sport is such a status symbol for. Putin personally, like it is one of the things that he has used internationally, his own involvement in judo and, you know, the whole Olympic thing and the international sport thing has been massive for him. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. David Walsh uh, has a line in it, which I- which is very interesting as well, about the 30 Russian uh, chess grandmasters who sent a message to Putin, very specific message and said chess teaches responsibility for one's actions. Every step, canceling a mistake can lead to a f- fatal point of no return. And if if this has always been about sports now, people's lives, basic rights and freedoms, human dignity and the present and future of our countries are at stake. So, you know, and chess is very high, very, very high status in uh, in Russia as well. So interesting that people like that are coming out. But th- the reality is he will only he will only probably be affected by finance, by money and by uh, by the oligarchs whose own money has been affected, maybe turning against him. But, but you know, it's you know, sport, Yeah.
2: Well, sport softened his edges. You know that's that's what Putin did. He used sport to soften his edges, and I suppose it made the ordinary man, the, you know, the the key the key in in all of this in terms of sports reviewing and sponsorship. They made it made him feel more human and more normal, and now, obviously. That's why we're looking for people to be removed from sport because you don't want people to think that the edges are being softened by watching this sport again and and that things are normal aside from this war in Ukraine. Mm
1: -hmm. uh, And Amy Sweeney is very good as well on it. And like he does make that line, and and, uh, I think it Ollie Holt in the Mail on Sunday as well that he's particularly good on the soccer end of it. But Amy Sweeney has a great line. He said, Sport, you know, he talks about the history of it. And he said, Sport never did like to hurt the feelings of dictators. Maybe that'll change now.
0: Yeah, we'll hold our breaths. So we'll take a short break. This week's Sunday Paper Review is in partnership with Unpust as well. The Unpust Irish Women in Sports Stamps are championing Ireland's sporting heroes on International Women's Day. You can get your stamps at your local post office or on post.com. We'll take a short break. Back with Sarah and Clean in just a sec. Now, you're very welcome back. We have Sarah Donovan and Kleena Foley reviewing the Sunday papers. We're going to jump to page 18 and 19 of the Sunday Times. Kleena, you pick this out. It says, No place for this. Davy Fitzgerald's latest uh, scuffle suggests he's not learning. Cork and camogie need better. So... Uh, Mick starts off 10 minutes from the end of the Clare Cork Camogie League game a few weeks ago Clare Joint Manager Connor Dolan hobbled down the steps of the stand at Cusack Park and Crutcher's heading for the sideline having spent the game in his seat minding a leg injury uh, then Mick outlines how there's a mix of close relationships and rivalries between the two benches and then having reached the sideline Dolan found himself closer to the Cork dugout when Hickey who was involved as well James Hickey part of Fitzgerald's uh, David Fitzgerald's backroom team at Wexford when Hickey began shouting at him to move back up the line, things got heated. Dolan eventually reacted, shouted something back. At that moment, Fitzgerald got involved, bumping chests with Dolan. After the linesmen intervened, the two clashed again as more people were drawn to the scene. Once the mood calmed, the referee sent Dolan and Fitzgerald to the stand. And Mick says, until last week, the only existing footage in public circulation from the game was grainy video from a mobile phone that quickly went viral pictures shared with the Sunday Times last week show Fitzgerald moving towards Dolan appearing to make some form of contact with Dolan's face when speaking to local journalists after the game Fitzgerald laughed the incident off he said great to get a red card on your first day back a bit disappointed with what happened on the sideline I don't think there was any need for it that's the way it goes it won't be the last bit of trouble you'll be involved in anyhow and on it goes uh, Mick Mentions the Camogie Association's disciplinary process went underground, no uh, public statements over the last couple of weeks. And he said, transpose the same incident to a GAA sideline during a National League game. It's difficult to imagine the story would disappear in the same way. Under Camogie rules, to use abusive or threatening language, gestures, or behaviour towards a referee, match official, any player or team official is punishable with a two match ban, 100 euro fine. In this case, both Dolan and Fitzgerald receive one match uh, bans. And he said, when the incident was raised again last week at a Cork Camogie sponsors launch, Fitzgerald grabbed the question before it bounced, insisting he had made peace with Dolan. He said, it was a misunderstanding, something I thought was said that was personal, but I've been assured it wasn't said and it's over and done with and there was nobody killed or no one hit. But when I'm involved, it's sure, look at that lunatic or whatever. That's fine. If people want to just think that I don't care anymore I just want to be who I am I am passionate
1: You can be passionate and not act like a lunatic is what I would say in this instance and this is my problem with David Fitzgerald constantly and I was really surprised first of all first of all I'm delighted to see uh, Michael Foley you know taking this piece on um, because the terrible double standards in women's sport you know if if you want equality then the coverage has to be the same the analysis has to be the same the disciplinary processes should be the same in my opinion as well but he makes a very interesting point that the 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 camogie disciplinary process is less stringent than the than the men's simply because this is such an unprecedented event so there's that to be said first of all, um, but you know when like I watched Davy last night in, in in analysis on RTE and, and people were giving out about the the new clamping down on an illegal hand passing and his 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 attitude always is oh let the game go what are you blowing it up for and i'm saying like rules are rules you know so you don't break rules if they're there for a reason <laughs> and i never get that and he always says oh you know p- you know if people think i'm a lunatic but if you behave like a lunatic then you know you're, you're giving people fodder for that thought when he when he got when he when he joined the car camogie and i'd be interested in in um, Sarah's opinion on this as, as a former court player um, when he joined you know, there was an element of people saying this is brilliant he's going to get, bring profile and I just thought why would you think that about any anybody getting involved with the sport surely what you want them to bring is expertise coaching analysis those are the things and the good things that you would hope that David Fitzgerald would bring to Corkomogi. And fair unfortunately, be fair, would this not, would, happened in his first game with them.
0: Would you not accept he could bring all those things? And when people said profile, they just meant, well, uh, a floating voter might be inclined to watch how Cork Corkomogi are getting on.
1: He, he, and uh, well, I suppose, yes. But given his and this is what uh, this is what uh, makes pieces about He's saying nothing about his repeat offenses down the year's point to any sort of learning experience. The problem is that he he has a tendency to get overwrought on sidelines sure. We've seen it repeatedly, mm. and that was that was my fear and then it happens at the very first match that he's involved in in a national league game and suddenly people are not talking about the play or the game they're talking about what happened on the sideline.
0: yeah Mick quotes Fitzgerald's autobiography at all costs where he says. What do I see in the mirror? Honestly, a reasonably decent man who's made many mistakes, that's who, but a man I like to think who's learnt from most of them. And so, Mick's point, and Cleaner read the quote from Mick's piece, is nothing about his repeat offences down the years point to any sort of learning experience. For Fitzgerald, the incident simply joined the volume of controversies now stretching back over four decades as a coach. Your thoughts on all this, Sarah?
2: Claire and Cork was never an ill tempered affair over the last 20 years of playing Camogie, If Clare were to get a win, it will be a surprise because of Cork's dominance. Uh, I think Clare won a Munster final maybe 10 years ago against Cork, against the run of play. Uh, To see the game be talked about for Davy Fitz, I don't think half the people know who won the game. (laughs) And and that's what's most disappointing for me is that Cork won the game. Clare played quite well. But the commentary two weeks later is about Davy Fitz on the sideline. As a player on the pitch that day, Cork's first day out, you know, in in six, seven months, looking to put last year's disappointment to bed, a new manager, a new structure, be taken seriously. And then this breaks out on the sideline. Professional players like Amy O'Connor don't deserve for the game to be turned into a mockery and a mess, you know, and, and, and for publicity to be about the managers two weeks later. And that's what's really disappointing for me. And we've gotten to a stage where we're bringing it to such a professional level. For Davy to be able to turn it into, you know, a, a brawl on a sideline is the reason why he might not be suitable for this Cork team or for the Camogo Association. So I don't agree that he's going to bring a profile or a positive profile, certainly. Mm.
0: There um, is something of the dark ages about GAA sidelines still, isn't there? You compare <laughs> it to any other uh, sport, really, and how routinely it just seems to happen in GAA matches, not just with Dave Fitzgerald, but even when... Like, he's a grown man and... He's uh, saying to the Cork Camogie sponsors lo- a launch uh, about the incident. He says it was a misunderstanding, something I thought was said and it was something personal.
1: Something I thought was said. Like, uh, what are we I, in the schoolyard? I mean,
0: it is it is at that level. I thought he said something personal about me. And so I had to go at him and, you know.
1: And Sarah, may, I mean, and his son was involved in, on the other side of management. Like, Sarah is so right saying like, this is not what we should be talking about. This is not the sort of behaviour that we see in women's Gaelic games and you know, it's just so central to the thing about, in fact, I mean, Mick Foley makes a very interesting point. And, you know, we're tired saying how many brilliant men are involved in, in women's sport and how we wouldn't be where we are without them. But he makes a very interesting point. Tracts of academic work have been devoted to the nuances that distinguish coaching techniques for women and men. While elite sports women are are much the same as elite sportsmen, they're also different. The games and the mood around them are different. And we've we Sarah's probably been saying we you know, have listened to people talking about even even in terms of coaching, that sometimes you you know, coaches at change how they do things with women because women are much more inclined to ask why and look for the details and the explanation, understand processes, whereas men, you know, they'd say are more inclined to just do as you say and maybe not question. So there are a difference in all of those things and yet to have people who come in and then just do something that is so ego driven I just think and so unnecessary and just it just frustrated me and, and Sarah's so right about the level that those players are at and the expertise and the training and everything that they're trying to put into it and I imagine that they were you know pretty upset that this is this was what the story became.
0: Okay. well, Mick Foley's uh, taken up the point very well there on pages 18 and 19 of the Sunday Times. Page 66 of the Mail, this is just an interesting one. Razzy Erasmus has done an exclusive interview with the Mail and really it's the first time he's spoken since his ill-fated Lions tour last summer and the headline is I'm not the monster who ruined rugby so right away I think you're inclined to read on and he's pictured here in Cape Town looking very relaxed and uh, smiling and it's uh, billed as an emotional and candid interview South Africa's Razzie Erasmus breaks the silence on the line storm that split rugby and almost cost him his career it's Nick Simon in Cape Town in South Africa he uh, meets uh, Razzy Erasmus who has cleared his diary for the afternoon 10am in a wine farm and they meet at a vineyard in the hills opposite table mountain he arrives in his 4x4 Toyota wearing a big grin and uh, Nick references even just people who happen to catch Razzie arriving come up to him and say thank you for everything you've done for our country and they're emotional and it just points to what we know which is Erasmus is very much a national treasure in South Africa and Erasmus says, do you know my sister lives in Reading, she's a social worker for the NHS, fully invested in English life, loves the royal family and God save the Queen and would stand outside clapping for the old guy, Sir Tom, uh, who walked up and down his garden a hundred times during uh, the lockdown. After what happened during the Lions tour, it felt like her family in the UK were the only people outside of South Africa who didn't hate me. How do you think that makes me feel? It feels awful, man. So just to jog your memory, Razi Erasmus uh, released an hour long video which went viral after the First Lines tour, where he picked apart the performance of the referee, Nick Berry. And as a result, he was billed as rugby's arch villain. So his key message in this entire interview is I did not leak the video. (laughs) People think I leaked the video. I didn't. Who leaks? And this is a fair point, to be fair, because it has caused him huge harm. Who leaks something like that? Why would I screw up my whole career to do that? I've got twin girls, 18 years old who are at school and they hear other parents telling them that their dad has effed it all up. My mum is at an old age home and they're showing her articles saying Razzie's lost it. He's got depression. He's drunk. They think those things because they are indoctrinated that I leaked that video. I want to tell the world swearing on my youngest child's life. I did not leak that video. Many people have already made up their mind. How do you change people's perception when world rugby have found me guilty and banned me for 12 months? I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I just want them to know what really happened and in effect he says the test happened he hated the referee in performance he tried to reach out to Nick Berry he didn't feel the meeting went well he got a bit of feedback on certain decisions made in the match but he says the feedback I received was inadequate only The obvious and not so critical mistakes were admitted, but the serious mistakes which affected the outcome of the match were not. So he says, we tried again, but were unsuccessful. So I decided the only way to get clarity on the decisions was to send this voiceover video that the whole rugby world has now seen. I submitted the video link to the restricted group. So the restricted group, by the way, is Joel uh, Juddage and Joe Schmidt of World Rugby and a few others. He said, I submitted the video to the restricted uh, group using Vimeo, which is secure and safe. It was not possible for anyone to even search for the video on any search engine without the link. I've been using this platform for ages. There was there's never been a breach of confidentiality. If I wanted to leak the video, there were many more effective ways of doing it. So uh, he says, I repeat, I am not the person who leaked the video. And he speaks at length clean about his daughters, completely embarrassed by the whole thing. Wouldn't even come to the second test because they were. Well, I think um, embarrassed at their own father is what he says, and he he talks about being in tears himself the day of the match, that's, the night before the match.
1: That's that's the one that really. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that actually interests me, and it's not it's not Erasmus saying, you know, uh, uh, I didn't leak the video, but it's it's the relationship between, um, I suppose, the whole Lions tour, the relationship between. Uh, coaches and rugby and referees—you know that whole, you know, interchangeable. You know, even there's a thing in it where he he says he, you know, he was trying to send messages, uh, saying, "Can we control the media? What's going on here?" You know, this, rugby seems to have a very strange attitude to a lot of things that, you know, you would that don't happen in other sports. But um, I thought that was interesting that he also said he was crying in his room before the second test. I was afraid if we had lost the second test, can you imagine that? You know what I would have got from my own people. Um, there's a lot in it. What isn't in it is why you would go and have a, a one-hour rant about the refereeing and put it out on was it wasn't it on social media at the time? I think was it? Was
0: no, it? well he's saying I, I didn't. I was privately sent to the yes, refereeing fraternity. But, but but
1: either way, but this the the content of that video was was what you would really like to like. You can make a point in ten or five minutes, but I mean anybody who saw it thought why why what is the need for such, you know, a detailed and like he does he, it's in one of the things he says and it is about he was he wasn't happy um with how uh, he felt that Sia Khaleesi's voice as the South African captain wasn't being respected by the referees mm. and He links that to the importance of having a black captain and the importance of him being treated equally. And he just that is an angle in it. That is it is there's some insight in that. All right. But I just thought um, it doesn't really centrally go to the thing which is why, how long that rant went on for, why was it not more structured and clear and all the rest and just the the, the madness of, of, I suppose, the way the whole thing was approached. But yeah, he do, he do, he does say the mistake I made was not putting a password on the link, which is, you know, probably yeah. something I would definitely not do either. Yeah,
0: um, I think that kind this of is feedback... Pro- There's the first
1: rec- two-parter as well, sorry, yeah, just to say that. It is, so yeah. We do more is to come.
0: I think that kind of feedback to referees is fairly common in rugby. And no, it this is. This would have been a done thing.
1: Yeah, so. it, it it is. But but it's it. I just think that there's an odd relationship. I know. I've asked asked referees Ref referee about this before. Like I know it's a. I know it's a it's a danger and it's a safety aspect but like there is no what other sports does uh, does the referee tell you hold on there you're going to foul don't foul there now mind yeah. what you're doing like it's a, there is a very strange relationship and then the amount of communication that goes on between them between you know at international level you know the access that you have to referees or you know the amount of I suppose collaboration that goes on it, it interests me because it doesn't happen in other sports and as I said I know there's a safety reason for it, but it does seem to me to be too close and also there does seem to be an element here of, you know, trying to control the message getting out there, you mm. know, and yet, who was putting the message out there? Yeah, the two coaches that were involved in, in, in the event.
0: So, Sarah, any thoughts on this again? Razzi, I did not leak the video is the message he wants to get out here in a big way.
2: OK, so my issue is that I think he's quite disconnected. You know, he talks about when the tour was cleared to go ahead, it was beautiful. Our saving grace, our economy needed it, our people needed it, South Africa was burning and then later on he talks about having a gun to his head because they were under so much pressure to win the game and i'm saying why is he putting so much store in winning the game when initially he was talking about the tour bringing so much to south africa and he he kind of lost his way you know and 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 i feel the wrong messages coming out here obviously you know i did not leak the video or or relating to the referee but but ultimately why Why does he think that South Africans cared about that second win? You know, he talks about the, the, if they lost the game, you know, it would have meant he wasn't a national hero. And, you know, his, his his relationship would have changed. And he put so much store in winning that one match. But ultimately, South Africa, you know, hasn't been changed for the better because they won one match. So, and, uh, and, and the, I just want to clarify, the by
0: the way, was interesting just too. to clarify, by the way, he was talking metaphorically about the gun against the head, just in case anyone picked it wrong. He wasn't taking it.
1: There is that, that interesting seriously. line there, but, but it related to that, because he, he does say that, um, you know, he bluffed, he bluffed the Lions organisers. So he said, um, you know, that I'd spoken to my players and if the midweek game is off, then with series is off. Yeah. It was a bluff. We couldn't afford to cancel, <laughs> to cancel the door. Nobody could afford to cancel that door. Um, even though you the the standard level was so bad that people said they should have. If we cancelled the tour, I was ready to say I lied about having the backing of my players and they would have resigned. Um, like, he's... Im- you can see... He- I mean, if you never saw that video, you would say, yes, he's a hugely emotionally invested in South African rugby. But um, I don't think this answers all the questions and I'll be interested to see what the second part of it. Is. But in terms of the emotional toll it was taking on him beforehand, yeah. it's very interesting because... I I still kind of I do make the presumption I suppose you know that people involved in sport at that level you know can take the emotion out of it and just say this is a job and you know I mean it's difficult if your family are being embarrassed and harassed and all the rest but I I, I was very surprised to hear him saying he was crying in his room beforehand
0: It almost seems he felt well after this video has been leaked if we lose this second test my career is in ruins I'm an embarrassment I'm I'm going to be pilloried nationally. And it's it's striking as well. He is very upset at how much vitriol has come his way outside of South Africa. So he's a national treasure in South Africa. But outside of South Africa, he's seen as having damaged rugby, rugby almost irreparably damaged the Lions tour and kind of been painted as a monster. He's very upset at all this, like he's not coming to this interview saying, I don't care what anyone thinks, they're all wrong we won the tour ha 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 no, i think he has clearly, been emotionally damaged way. and yeah, rattled, rattled yeah, by this yeah. whole thing is my sense anyway yeah, and this yeah. is like his his effort to almost rehabilitate his reputation a touch by saying look yeah i did the video but i mean i didn't put it out there to put huge pressure on the referee or to embarrass nick berry which is what happened so we'll see what's in part 2 i don't really know what's needed in part 2 actually so maybe it gets uh, goes into more can i suggest territory. yeah
2: yeah can i suggest there's quite a lot of similarities right there to david fit you know, the the love and the hate aspect here um, in Irish sports and South African sports. You know, two people who are very clearly emotional um, and, and raw and passionate and they just don't seem to be hitting the right note enough, you know?
0: Yeah, no, there definitely has to be a sea change where you can't just say, look, I'm passionate, therefore all is forgiven all the time. You know, the odd time, I guess it's fair enough, but it just can't be a, a default. Well, it was passion. What can I do? You know,
1: <laughs> and while and, and and in his case, he didn't break the rule. You know, he's entitled to make these videos and send is, his yeah, yeah, send totally. impression to the referees, and that's all allowable. Yeah. Um, I was just at the time really surprised at the man the, the, the content of the video and the the, the intensity. Manual. The intensity is wow. exactly.
0: Uh, <laughs> we'll take a short break. We're going to go through the final couple of stories in just a moment. We are reviewing the Sunday papers here on Off the Ball. It's in partnership with Unpust this weekend. The Unpost Irish women in sports stamps are championing Ireland's sporting heroes on International Women's Day. You can get your stamps at your local post office or on post.com. Very happy to say we have Cliona Foley here in studio and Sarah Dunovan, All-Ireland winning camogie player as well. Uh, two pieces which are linked, I suppose. Uh, Michael Dignan in on page 63 of the Mail on Sunday who is writing about integration of Ladies GEA and Camogie and the GEA? And we have Helen O'Rourke profiled on page 10 of the Sunday Independent, who has been the CEO of the LGFA for 25 years, which is an extraordinary uh, run. So, Kleene, you might get the ball rolling here. There's been a lot of talk of integration of the GEA and the LGFA and the Camogie Association of late, in particular. Michael Dignan is almost given his lived experience of doing Mm -hmm. that in awfully and I mean he's very enthused about it and you know, holds his hands up and says, Jeez back 20, 30 years ago, this stuff was completely over my head. And now he's seen the benefits of it at community level in a big way.
1: Yeah, a really good piece, actually. And like, as, as the chairperson of uh, of Offaly of GA as well, his insights, I think, are really, really valuable. We were talking about this. I remember I think about a month ago I was here and I was saying integration, like how the integration happens, when it happens, it's not going to be an overnight process. Like we've just seen golf integrate in Ireland. And it took them four years, didn't it? Two years of of talking, collaborating with clubs and and getting the sounding voices and then actually putting together a structure and then looking at it, pulling it apart, putting it back together, creating a whole new body for golf in Ireland. And historically, the Women's Association was way older than the men's, of course. So it's not going to be a simple process. What we have now, though, is we have people coming out and saying, important. People, people who are involved in the sport saying we want it. We, the, the ladies football age, um, con- congress on, on Friday uh, voted for it as well. Voted just to, voted just certainly to keep the momentum going and to discuss it more realistically now. But it comes down, it will come down as all these things do to money and facilities. Money and land. <laughs> Doesn't everything in Ireland come down to money and land? Um, but it really, it really will. And Michael, Michael is really good here because he goes through the details of talking to uh, people involved in in Offaly County Board. Their 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 coaching officer is is a woman, Karina Haverty. Talking to her, you know, t- taking soundings, understanding it seeing how they could change things at a county board level. And one of the really important things, and Sarah knows this more than anyone, is sponsorship, trying to get the same sponsor for for men's and women's teams in the county. And Offaly have got the disc and they're talking to Camogie and Ladies Football in Offaly about uh, making sure the sponsor sponsors them all. And I think that's really important because sponsors we know now have a huge influence on sporting uh, strategy I think long term but he then he looks at it and he says when you look at you know mileage rates uh, physio taking care of players Um, Then you look at uh, gates, what's been brought in, how do you fund it uh, equally and then the practical element. What about pitches? You know, how do we how do we create more space for male and female players to get space to play games? So this is at the heart of the whole thing. And I think he does a really good, uh, really good job on on, on discussing the the, the nitty gritty of it, if you like.
0: I agree because it's easy not to discuss the nitty gritty. It's easy to say, well, pitches for all, equality for all. And everyone says, well, how could you disagree with that? Of course, let's go. And, you know, he starts off by painting the great picture of boys and girls getting out of the car together for matches, parents supporting on both fronts, the barbecues, the things organised around the games. That is real integration and he, he loves the GAA playing that role and he, he talks about his own town which doesn't, you know, necessarily have uh, loads going on outside of the GAA and so it's so important. But on the nitty-gritty point, like, as you said, mileage, uh, physio, And all the supports that male intercounties teams are being funded, if you're going to equal that for Camogie and ladies football, the bill is three times that and it's already massive. So where will that where will we get the money? And he's saying this, I suspect, as a county board chairman. Consider the gate at a county final. If 5000 supporters pay in for the men's final and there's 500 at the ladies final, do we combine the monies and split gates equally? How does an equal funding model work in practice across the three codes? And then there's the practical element. We won't have any more pitches, we won't have any more lights, we won't have any more money. So there are going to be obvious practical sticking points. And he also talks as well about the makeup of committees. The GPA motion is looking for 50-50 representation on committees. To me, that's a bias. It's who's best for the job. I would take 100% ladies for a committee if that's the best fit. If five have to be men and five have to be women, is that really integration? Question mark and he raises these questions Does and they says four we four women
1: on the management committee in Offaly, which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah.
0: So, uh, like, it's good to raise these points and for him to express them publicly and in, in a very honest and, I think, genuine, sincere way. Sarah, what did you take from all that?
2: So, the nitty-gritty part is very interesting to me. I'm currently coaching two teams. Um, I train one of the teams on a Tuesday evening on a tennis court. They're an incredibly uh, talented group of ladies, but I haven't seen goalposts yet. So... Yeah. We play on a pitch with goalposts, and I am training them on a tennis court. That's a Tuesday evening. Friday, Thursday evenings, we train the girls at 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock until 10 past 10. And some of the players who are mums uh, can't come to training because their kids are up at 4 in the morning, so they have to be in bed for half 8, 9 o'clock, and the timing just isn't working. And what I would say to the integration piece is, we're going to have to look at the whole model, and it might be that the calendars might be separate we would all have access to the pitches. We would all have access to the facilities. It just mightn't be able to be happen at the same time. So, you know, we are going to have to do lots of outside-the-box thinking. Mm. Um, I was reading, obviously, Helen O'Rourke and, mm. you know, speaking about autonomy. And her big concern is that, you know, that they want to retain their autonomy. But I don't know how much autonomy the Ladies Football Association had last year when, obviously, they ended up in Croke Park with the Cork and Galway fiasco. And, you know, they were asking the men's side of uh, of the association to, to let them into Croke Park at a very fundamental point in their season. And it was quite embarrassing at that point. So, you know, I, I think she has to look at autonomy, but also integration. And she can't just, you know, uh, be so dismissive of, of the practicalities of, of running an organisation when you don't own your own facilities.
1: It's a, it's a it's a it's a key thing i was looking at uh, at um you know there was a lot of, a lot of the papers this weekend because international women's day is coming up on tuesday and there was loads about feminism what fem- feminism means and i read something really interesting uh, which really struck a chord with me which was about feminism is about money it's about it's about uh, having independent wealth so that you can do what you want to be able to do and it is a problem for uh, for uh, female team sports in that they don't have that traditionally because they haven't had the audiences and the tv money and all the rest so it leaves them impoverished on that side and because of that you're absolutely right you spot spot on there you don't have that autonomy because you're always beholden to somebody else to get facilities so it's it's it is absolutely central to it, it it's a good piece Nadine dean Doherty has a piece on the headline is iron lady forged a new era and like it is it does look at how much has and, and Helena Roque, who's been in the role for 25 years has done for Ladies Gaelic Football but she makes some really interesting um, observations at the end of it I think and also Helena Rourke doesn't really do um, one-on-ones she hasn't done them for a very long time um, and the, it's the 50th anniversary next year so I think it would be interesting and I hope she would Nadine makes the point and she would be very close to players still um, uh, In her point is that she feels that Because Helen O'Rourke herself personally didn't come out and speak after that awful incident last year with that late switch of of venue for All-Ireland semi-finals and and how the women were treated in it, um, she said that she's lost, she feels that she has perhaps lost the trust of the players who kind of expected her to be the one to come out and and explain that. And she says, I just think this is interesting what she says, she says, Over the years in her own club, it didn't occur to us to complain because conditions continued to improve, albeit from a a low baseline. Behind the scenes, our battles are being being fought by O'Rourke and her team. And for that, I will be eternally grateful. But there is perhaps a cohort of current players who have a limited insight into the work the LGFA has done over the last 25 years. That's no fault of their own. But there is possibly a, a further disconnect between the current players and the administration. I often, I often, uh, you know, seriously, probably same. You, you talk some current players and you say, you know, God, the amount of progress is amazing. But they don't see that because they're where they they're here now. They're here and now they mm-hmm. train their butts off. You know, they're looking for equality. They can't understand why there isn't money for things that they they know county players need to play at that level. Yeah. You know, and amazing to see yesterday that crowd for that league game. And I think that's one of the ways forward. To see that crowd for that league game between Dublin and me in Navan yesterday was just fantastic. Also, to know, and, and it's an interesting one, Sarah's saying about like, how do we manage this duality? Who, Michael Dygan said it there, who gets the gate or how is the gate split? And I used to always think that that's going to be a problem. But haven't Leinster Council this year said they're going to play the, the ladies' football final and the men's football final together on the same day? Um, so there's obviously an agreement there about how that gate is going to be split or somebody is they're coming to some compromise so I think these little shifts are happening you know and I think there's been great momentum in the last few weeks that really will push it on but you know it is an interesting thing about um, how much has been done so far her place in that um, and and where it goes from here and this, this inference that the LGFA were the ones who are holding back progress why is that she has said it before, Helena, that I think that this thing about wanting to keep autonomy and wondering, you know, I, I often hear people saying, oh, people are going to lose jobs. The LGFA has, I think, only 14 official staff. It's not like, you know, it's not a huge organisation that people, you know, I think all that's that's all nonsense, I think. I think it is about how, you know, the compromises are made and, and how there is agreement and how people on both sides will give and take
0: to her credit, I mean, it says in the piece Nadine Doherty's written that the position of the LGFA now, the financial position, is very strong. At 31, Helen O'Rourke was perceived by many to be too young and too inexperienced. And here she is 25 years later and so much has happened. On the Galway-Cork debacle last year where the Parnell pitch was frozen and then the moved Park and effectively there was no warm-up time and they were like being told with, you know, five, six minutes in the pitch, come on, get a move on, let's go. I did feel at the time, and I said at the time, I thought the LPGA... Or, excuse me, the LGFA yeah, that day were far too meek about the whole thing. Yeah. And it's interesting that Nadine Doherty has said in her piece that the most significant collateral damage from that day was a distrust manifested between the players and the LGFA. Footballers across the country felt abandoned as the LGFA publicly thanked the GAA for their ongoing support use of facilities, especially at short notice, while all but saying that both teams should have been just thankful to have played in Crow Park regardless of circumstances. O'Rourke's own silence failing to appear because it was the president of the LGFA who I think was interviewed yeah. the next morning morning in Ireland, and that did not improve the situation. It was her own silence, failing to appear or comment in the media was seen as a letdown by the players. And I thought, you know, if she was interviewed, she should have been asked, "Why didn't she get on the phone to Crow Park and say, "This is an All-Ireland semi-final. Are you seriously telling me you're not going to push back yeah, the July, men's July match the game, by yeah. 15 or yeah. 20 minutes, which you do all the time for traffic?" To give our players adequate warm up space. And I think as well there was an issue with the cameras couldn't be moved from Parnell Park to Crow Park. But that again, issue, yeah. to get onto RTE and to say to Declan McBennett, who's been very supportive of uh, women's sport, are you not going to give us a lend of your cameras and your crew who could be on site to uh, provide service for this match? Are you, are you all not going to do this? Do I have to publicly shame you? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, There was a
1: beholdenness the, there. You know, There was, there was, a, oh, a real, there was that gratitude of yeah, you nodding the cap. And, uh, and, and, and people uh, outside a, so of it are so frustrated by that and players are so frustrated by that. But it is serious, absolutely right. It's the reality. Listen to what she's telling us about having to coach teams on day. Yeah, on a, but I, on,
0: I would have thought in that instance, I mean, I, you think back to the, the GPA in its founding years, you have to upset a few people. You know, you have to, if, if, if Helen O'Rourke had to publicly say, Or to you wouldn't give us their cameras. Crow Park wouldn't move the game by a measly 50 minutes. This is the way we're treating women and like almost go to war a little bit. That might have been, in my opinion, preferable at the time to, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We don't need to warm up. We'll just get on with it. It's only an order semi-final. Like I thought the uh, LGPA maybe there or the LGFA, excuse me, if golf in the mind, the LGFA should have done a bit more that day. But it is interesting to see that that day has had repercussions, maybe for the relationship with the organization and the players.
1: Yeah, or just that that trust that's there, as you say. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time as well, if this was the GAA, would the CEO of the GAA be coming out to speak about this or the president? And why is it the, not the CEO? Of the You know what I mean? Yeah. The, because, they, you know, she has to have been centr- centrally involved. Uh, it look it's 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 ongoing and it's really again good to see so much coverage of this. Um, Mark Gallagher has a piece today in in the Mail on Sunday. There's lots. Uh, there's some coverage as well. Some follow up coverage of the women's rugby as well. So f- it's the first time Sunday papers. I don't know uh, how you feel, but for a long time there's actually a lot about women's sport in the Sunday papers today. Huge, match. Um, which shows yeah. I suppose the place that it's it's uh, becoming to have in society. Mm.
0: Uh, Sarah, was there any last point you wanted to make on all that before we move maybe on to the rugby report?
2: Sure, I suppose just from the financial point of view that um, was being made in Nadine Doherty's article about how well-placed the Ladies Football Association are now in terms of their financial position and, and, and that they could actually stand apart. I felt that, uh, speaking to your point about you know, the choices they could have made in terms of speaking up against RTE and speaking up against um, the situation they had, all Ireland semi-final those sponsors you know have put Ladies Football Association in a very powerful position Mm. and that was that that should mean that they have a voice and they shouldn't be able to use their voice you know if you look at the Irish women's soccer team and the position they put themselves in you know they went to war and now I would say they're in a, a much better position and they have a brilliant sponsor in Sky so naivety on the part of Helen O'Rourke, unfortunately, at that point. Because she
0: she would, I mean, they would have had 99% public support as well. Like, Mm -hmm. push the men's game back 15 minutes will transform the experience of our players. Who's against that? Yeah. I
1: remember thinking at the time, nobody, uh, Nobody. who would have objected, you know, or who could have have objected? People
0: at Crow Park getting an extra game to watch for free. Do you know, like, but it was very meek and it made me wonder if maybe, you need to be a bit more aggressive, especially now at the point of integration, like it can't be a case of going, well, at least she's saying we need autonomy and we're not just going to go in there and be and I, and I also, th- to.
1: I Yeah. And I also think that where, she, where she's come from. Remember, yeah. 1973, ladies football started, you know, and that was just on a competitive level and the organisation as a professional organisation, if you like, is so much more recent, 25 years really, since she took over, that where she's come from, she has done things maybe a lot of the time by stealth or collaboration or cooperation. And that's been the most successful way. Yes, fair. but absolutely yeah. right. When Sarah says, uh, given everything we've seen in the last few years and the, the numbers of people at that match yesterday, the interest, the quality in that match yesterday in in, uh, in Navin uh, between Dublin and me, just such a brilliant thriller. Maybe now the, GA, the LGFA should realize that they have more power and, and they should yeah. be using it, as you're suggesting.
0: So, uh, page 71 of the Mail on Sunday, none the wiser is the headline. It's Rory Keane's piece here. No clear answer on World Cup debacle while mystery grows over withheld details. This is, well, the first of two IRFU commission reports into the women's game here. And Rory Keane opens by saying, at the end of Friday's hour and a half long media briefing into Ireland's failure to qualify for the World Cup, there was one glaring question unanswered. Why did Ireland fail to qualify for the World Cup? And he says, IRFU CEO Kevin Potts was front and centre Friday Flanked on the video call by Amanda Bennett, who conducted conducted the report, and Fiona Steed, who's the former Irish international, now sitting on the RFU committee. 30 recommendations in total, an additional €1 million in funding per year. There's a new role created, uh, Head of of Women's Performance and Pathways to oversee the women's game here. Uh, Roy makes the point that, you know, the one of the recommendations for instance is the national team needed a full-time analyst, nutritionist, better support with regards to kid equipment and accommodation. So that tells you everything about the state of the women's game. And there was no mention of Anthony Eddy uh, leaving his post the night before. Uh well, Potts it, denied yeah. the two events were linked.
1: Yeah, there was a question that was made I was on the con- on the, on the media con- there was a, he was asked was it connected and he said absolutely not. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Although uh, Rory says what we're all thinking that it's not a major leap to deduce that the, both events were likely to be inextricably linked. But anyway, they're saying that they're not. And um, I guess it, yeah. there's a, the overall sense is there's just very little information in the report. I think they've declined the opportunity to publish it because a number of people spoke on the condition of anonymity. I'm sure that point was made, cleaner.
1: But I asked that question because uh, I asked that question of the woman who was in charge of what was an independent independent report an independent company making an independent report i said to look at we've had loads of post olympic reports in this country lots of them and uh you can just uh, players can be quoted, or anybody can be quoted anonymously. Why yeah. was that not? Why did that not happen in this case? Why did you not publish it? Because remember, this was the this was at the heart of the players' complaints was that they knew this review was happening. This hap- this review was commissioned before yeah. that player's letter in December. The commission was was commissioned in November, but the players were afraid that it was going to fudge things and not be transparent. You know, and in the end, it isn't transparent because we. I was. Made the analogy that the scrum went down, but we still don't know who took it down. No, um, but I- in the report or in the recommendations, we, we so what what we didn't get we didn't find out was who brought the scrum down. We got what we were told is it's been reset. We've improved all these things. There's 30 recommendations. We're working on them. Off we go every and and it was said that players um, were happy that this was the way to go. Uh, but it is interesting because it's the key question why did Ireland fail to qualify for the World yeah. Cup? You presume there were faults at every level including you know the players on the field oh, big time players. you and know, Rory, Absolutely big time.
0: Rory makes that point actually and I wonder if this is true. He says ironically there was little clarity on what happened in Parma in September. Yeah. Eddie wasn't mentioned nor was Adam Griggs uh, the coach at the time or his coaching team or any of the players for that matter. He says in his piece here, Rory, there were obviously uh, some uncomfortable truths in this report for the RFU, and it's quite possible certain players may not have emerged covered in glory either. Consequently, it would seem all parties concerned are happy to move on from what transpired during that ill-fated month in Parma.
1: Yeah, and it's and they and they uh, part of the response to that question was um, that they didn't publish the report on the recommendations or discussions with the independent company who made it and their legal team. Right so that's where we are
0: there's real look we are where we are everyone. let's <laughs> that's not go exact, raking somebody actually the used past.
1: that phrase we are where we are <laughs>
0: Yeah. we don't need to get into it look we didn't make the World Cup we did our best we'll move on
1: what he does make a point though was that that sneering hostile response to the players letter was replaced with a more conciliatory magnanimous message uh, of peace and progress and I mean Kevin Potts actually apologising to players he was asked at one point what exactly are you apologising for yeah. but um, that that certainly is unprecedented I think yeah. I'd like to understand was it
2: off-field or on-field the players left the side down because if you're coming back into, you know, a new season and a new structure you'd hate to feel like the blame was laid at your feet and you didn't necessarily know what you did. Now maybe it's very clear within the player group but uh, you know reading from from this article I was a bit unsure as to whether the players were being were being blamed for their on or off-field behavior. And I would like that to be cleared up if if I was a player going back into that squad.
1: What surprised me, I suppose, was as well, was that just that so many jobs. Uh, so what wasn't clearly delineated what Yes, and still hasn't been. Even in this review, is where do sevens and fifteens work together, and how you know where is the priors the priority? Where is it going to be going forward? That's now to be decided by the new head head of women's high performance, which is a new new role that's going to be appointed. But um, I did think there were that you know that's that still hasn't been answered. But also, you, it was quite. Some, I mean, there's thirty recommendations. They've agreed to move on them. They've moved on, about half of them or more than half of them already. But it is shocking to hear that a lot of the roles that you would expect to be full time, you know, like. Psych, sports psych, um, strength and conditioning, nutritionist, all those things We're all part time roles. You know, that is so y- that shows you how much has to be done. Um, I don't I don't I don't know who who we don't know who involved with any of this review put their hands up and said I was at fault or I did something wrong because we don't know. We were never told any of that. All we were told were this is the recommendations and everybody's happy and we're going to move on with it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Shane McGrann, his piece, I think, makes a really Good point, which is, okay. the extra million is now being invested. So suddenly we're up to four million and that's not nothing at all. He was saying, I don't want to paraphrase him too much, but effectively saying, let's not necessarily just throw that money at full time or part time contracts. What rugby in the women's game needs to focus on is grassroots in a big way, because he says in 2018, the number of adult players is one thousand three hundred and forty one. Now, they're trying to get to five thousand by 2023. But he says, given how well that plan's going, it's safe to assume that target won't be met. And he said, Ireland is trying to compete at test level with a pool of players that may still not extend to 2,000. And really, that's the area they need to sort out. The plan is to have a youth player numbers at 6,500. In 2018, it was 2,500. So, I mean, it's hard to overstate, Sarah, how small that base is. I mean, if Ireland are going to be competitive, it can't be a case that you're at fewer than 2,000 senior players to pick from.
2: I agree 100, and I, and I suppose to attract players in, you have to know that the environment is something that they want to become a part of. Yeah. And from a player point of view, that was my concern a while ago. It's like, is this a difficult bunch of players? Is this a notoriously difficult group to get involved with? Am I better off staying in my own lane? They won't attract new players in unless the environment is 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 there, and, it's, and so it's chicken and egg. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's and
1: all it's all chicken and egg. No, isn't it is. It? Yeah, yeah. It's like funny. certainly
0: something in Parma went wrong. Like those players should have been good enough to beat what was in front of them, whatever about the wider issues yeah, in Irish rugby something went badly awry something went
1: badly awry and was it in their preparation was it on the day was it on the coaching on the day we know players made mistakes on the pitch but that happens you know all the time players make mistakes all the time just like referees make mistakes yeah. all the time um, and and, and I, th- I think as well that we, w- there were some positive things that happened recently that I think like Shane is saying where do you spend the money how do you spend it where does it go into grassroots like in the last week or two um, Munster have announced that they're starting a Uh, school girls junior and senior cup competition first time ever four teams only starting in the senior but that's a start Mm -hmm. right that integrates them and that integrates schools and clubs and then into their local you know uh, see underage it was a really good question asked as well at, at the thing that wasn't answered but i was surprised they asked was should you pursue the model of provincial with the women's game when it's not professional, so it's not needed. And maybe you'd be better off doing it in a different way or maybe only provincial underage. And actually, Fiona Steed, who's on, who's now on the IRFU executive or the, you know, the main yeah. board, she balked at that and said, oh, God, no, you never take away the provincial thing. But it was a really good question. And it made me think about it as well, because um, I know that also this week. The other good thing I saw happening recently was that they've made new underage development. They've they've kind of brought, created a new underage uh, development squad that will feed into the Irish team, as mm-hmm. opposed to provincial teams, because they're there already. So there's lots of new stuff happening as well that may be far more relevant in the long run, in creating new players, as as Sarah's saying, than this report. Yes. But this report is definitely going to make changes. It appears to be ready to make changes for what's happening with the national senior team. And also, there is definitely a change of tone. And that was, I think, really important.
0: Mm. Uh, Just before we go, two last quick pieces. So you both picked out or certainly Sarah, you did and you got a chance to read it as well. I didn't quite get a chance to read it, but this was a profile of Desi Farrell in the Sunday Business Post. What jumped out here, Sarah?
2: Well, a couple of things, I suppose. In detail, Barry White goes through the kind of demise of Dublin football over the last five, six months um, and and the the stark fall from grace. And I suppose when he's talking about Desi Farrell specifically, he he talks about somebody who came into the role who was looked at as the ideal candidate for the role because of his accolades and, and previous accolades. And then it goes on to say, in light of the success of Dublin teams thereafter maybe he wasn't the right man for the job because he hadn't won enough or in the same way as as the current crop. And uh, to my, I suppose, there's a couple of interesting points. Uh, Kevin Cassidy um, w- was kind of coming out in his defence saying this group of players was a once-in-a-generation group of players and anyone was going to struggle. Um, I, I, I think that if Dublin get relegated, um, it, it's actually going to make the competition poorer And, and, you know, I think Dublin's woes are actually going to be negative for Dublin football. Uh, And I think that's what kind of came out of it for me.
1: I th- I, one of the things I thought, was it, like, and it, it, of course, he makes he does make the points as well about all the players who are injured currently and are due to come back into the team and how it could be a very different team by the time the summer rocks around. Um, but also, um, B- Bernard Brogan is quoted now. There's an anonymous Dublin player quoted. I think or, or an ex-Dublin <laughs> player. I think that's funny. I just think it's funny the the notion that somebody. What what does he say? A well-known Dublin GA figure who didn't want to be named in this piece. And you it's think like what? an IRFU will be
0: reporter
1: <laughs> That's a bit strange. But anyway, um, but but. Bernard Brogan comes out in, in this and quite strongly says that Desi was the right man for the job. Right, And given his history and his coaching of so many of these young uh, players when they were minors and under 21 players, the question does remain and it is raised by that's the central thesis here is really is who else? who else would have done it or who else might have done a better job or who else was in a better position to take it on but I, I think it's interesting that um, Brogan says I'm not defending him out of some sense that Dubs should speak well of Dubs I genuinely believe he's the right man to merge the new players and the old players and bring them through this transition mm. so that's a that's a vote of confidence from a very respected yes, figure in within Dublin
0: what does the anonymous dub say? <laughs> the they speak a touch <laughs> the, <forward>. an-
1: <laughs> the anonymous dub actually what the anonymous dub, dub says which made me laugh so much, is they could have beaten Mayo the last day. They missed three guilt-edged goal chances and they let in a goal they wouldn't normally have done.
0: What do you need Which to be anonymous I thought,
1: about for that? <laughs> but never mind, never mind that they're anonymous. But also, if you're not going to
0: say something juicy. Don't go <laughs> anonymous.
1: <laughs> but also the fact that they wouldn't normally let it go, that they wouldn't normally have done. I mean, sorry, what's the new normal here? The new normal is changing all the time.
0: Uh, oh God, I thought it was going to be something. Uh,
1: good. It's, he was saying it's such a. He was saying they've had a look, a lot of look before, and they're not having yeah. any look at the moment. Joe, the poor devil. Okay, but don't quote me on that.
0: <laughs> but don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you yeah, will, you will agree,
2: though, obviously, that if if, if Dublin are relegated. You know, the energy goes out of the capital very quick. So, w- while we can look at, we can look on and say, God, you know, they're playing brutally. Uh, they have to be in the championship for it to be effective. Just with the sheer number of people in Dublin who support it, the ordinary band, you know, it, it makes for a great summer in Dublin.
1: And the money and the money as well. It's a big one. there was a nice piece and uh, just Shane Warren just to say just to, because I know there probably be lots of people, uh, cricket fans and Shane Warren fans. And there's some lovely pieces on Shane, Shane Warren and um, throughout the papers. And um, I thought there was a g- very good one in the Sunday. And I think it's from um, Simon. And um, I think it might be from Simon Briggs in The Telegraph, but it really good, Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Capture, I was, was talking about him almost as uh, you know, this great character at the the perfect point of Professionalism, but not quite full on professionalism. And actually, if he didn't off come, the come along <laughs> 10 or 15 years earlier, or even I tell 10 you, this load into
1: county managers would have had him off the panel very quickly yeah. <laughs> for his off the field <laughs> behavior. There's no doubt about that.
0: Yeah, to mention as well, uh, Paul Kimmage is writing again in the Sunday Independent. And he's responding to the criticism of his two-part piece over the previous two weeks. Now, Sarah, I know you haven't had a chance to read those pieces. And, clean, I know you didn't see part two. So it's kind of probably not best advised to get too into this uh, under those circumstances. But he's saying shooting the messenger, a classic race, scene, certainty. So he's doubling down. And he's saying we've been here before with a murder and a regulator that can't be trusted. He's, he's doubling down in the links and the, the commonalities between cycling and horse racing, for instance, Kevin Blake was one of those who criticised the pieces, not delving too much into Pike Bridge. And again, if you're just coming to this fresh, it would take a long uh, explanation here. Pike Bridge of Stephen Mahan, who it was pointed out by several people that indeed myself in part one, that it wasn't referenced when in it was in the context of a sense that the IHRB had gone after Stephen Mann for welfare issues after he turned whistleblower and so to not mention Pike Bridge seemed like an omission but Paul Kemmage addresses all the Pike Bridge uh, scandal or or, or points here and and is arguing that actually uh, the Pike Bridge case was more complicated than it might seem at first glance and goes through it in a lot of detail. Like It's it's difficult to, to... tease it all out here. So the best thing, I suppose, if you're following this case is just to to read it. But certainly when he deals with the Pike Bridge situation, he says that uh, for three months now we've been doing our uh, duty. It's hard not to conclude that racing has a cycling problem. A regulator who Paul Kimmich says can't be trusted, an unquestioning press, a contract of a murder between enforcers and enablers. He says the sport is one chance and he references how uh, last week Paul Gavin of Sinn Féin called for an inquiry into the I- IHRB. Gavin demanding a full independent inquiry into all affairs, activities, practices, appointments within the IHRB. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of rumour and innuendo and speculation prior to these Sunday independent articles being published about the possible use of illegal performance enhancing drugs. I mean, again, to, it's impossible to sum it up neatly because uh, we're talking about a massive across-two-weeks piece. But in effect, Stephen Mann is... Alleging drug use in the sport. He talks of conversations with somebody in the yard of Trainer X as it was billed and goes through the various uh, substances given to horses. Stephen Mann's currently serving ju- yeah, a four-year reduced to three and a half year ban for uh, welfare issues of over his horses. And there's links drawn as to, well, the timing of, you know, this ban hitting him around the time he's turned whistleblower. And then, of course, look, there's the Pike Bridge Welfare issue from uh, years ago, which Paul Kimmage tries to go into and give a different side to in this piece. Where that leaves the sport, I don't know. You know what I would say, actually, though, for all this talk of welfare over the last two weeks, is if there is an investigation into the IHRB, the welfare of these animals is just talked about with such, you know, it, 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 as if it's of lesser importance than doping. Like for me, as, a, as someone looking on to the sport, Animal welfare issues, every bit as important as doping and doping really is an animal welfare issue. So uh, getting to the bottom of what has or hasn't happened with Stephen Mahan and any other yard when it comes to welfare is every bit as important for me as doping, I would say. And that's the thing, reading it, uh, you know that the, the, uh, there's doping in every sport. We know it's happening uh, the welfare of these animals is every bit is important and it's not given the same prominence. I'd like to see, we could see an investigation into that just as quickly, to be honest. I, Clean, I know you didn't read part two and Sarah, I know you haven't read the pieces. So there's a degree of me just um, waffling on here. But that jumped out to me like, so what happened with Pike Bridge is a question I now have. Let's get in there. Let's find out exactly what happened and let's get to the bottom of this four year ban. But the four because
1: year ban was, was, was subsequent to Pipe. No, it was, I know. Yeah, that's but, very important to understand. But again, I think there, the there, problem here the, for the
0: point is being made, though, in this piece or in, in these pieces that there's uh, there's a, an implication that as soon as Steve Mann turned whistleblower, that then he gets hit with this four year ban. And so is that that's more than a coincidence almost. And, and what's happened yeah. like behind the scenes? Let's get in and, and, and figure this out, because welfare is just as serious an issue, if not more serious than doping. Like, I don't think. Pike Bridge cares if it won the Grand National a horse cares about how it's been treated and looked after so look if there if if something
1: it's difficult because there's
0: legal issues but I I, I
1: think this piece sorry this, this piece again is Paul Kimmage responding to some criticisms again of his coverage from within the racing industry so That's where this piece is coming from again. And he's saying, you know, we've been here before with Omerta and a regulator that can't be trusted. That's his allegation, not mine. Um, All I'd say is that he he is working off the evidence of one whistleblower. And I think when these cases come to light and you're trying to break down a, a structure and try to get to the truth of things, it helps to have more than one source. We were always trained as journalists to have three—you know minimum of three sources on and, and, and big news stories or breaking stories. So I think um, that is why this will to and fro until there is hard evidence produced yeah. and or, or somebody else collaborates this evidence but or, but the, or what this or what one person is saying.
0: That's, I don't think anybody would be shocked to know that there is an issue with drugs in the sport. It's always had a reputation. And sure, like this is a sport where even losing is a way to make money. And that happens deliberately. So nobody's shocked. And I would say as well, when Jim Bulger spoke up, he was absolutely listened to. Yeah,
1: you know, because he holds such reverence correct, within the sport. Correct. You know, so I, I, it is wrong. His it, longevity. It, is, it
0: yeah. is wrong to say that he was shot down or he was ignored. He absolutely wasn't uh, to the point where this went before ROCTUS committees and was discussed there. So Jim Bulger was not shot down. And. At that point, should be made as well. Mm. Um, I think.
1: I think this is this is going to run and run. But I think more more needs to. I suppose. I think again, it's about hard facts and and other evidence. I think that is going to be important if something is to change and if 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 the alleged um, corruption in the system is to be exposed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And look, any allegations, w- you know, will be listened to here and at the full. So, you know, like any investigation into this sport has. Uh, full back in here because you know, of course, yeah. nobody wants frozen sport. But um,
1: that piece that I was talking about actually is in the Sunday Independent. One about Shane Warren. Yeah. But it, the, the sub headline on it is Shane Warren never forgot that sport was fun, and it, it is a great piece on that. But yeah. the reality is that commercial sport, particularly sport. Where money and power and, and all these kind of things about is not fun, and we've seen so much of that, and that's probably what most of the coverage today is about.
0: No, it's in, it's been incredibly grim, actually. Every topic we've talked about, but um, sorry, getting i I just want to make the point I, again: drugs for sure. dude let's do deep dives on animal welfare and make sure everything is kosher there, because certainly the text messages I read in part two between an employee of Mahan and Lynn Hillier uh, were not good, and and that shouldn't be overlooked either, and and um. You know, if if racing is to survive, there's the issue of doping, sure, but also, are we doing right by these animals?
1: And, and, Should be and, to the forefront that of was the, the conversation. Big, and of course, that was the big ethical question raised in the Gordon Elliott case. You know, wasn't it? You know, it was about respect for animals, how animals yeah. are treated, even when they're dead. You know, where do we go from there? And by coincidence. There are a couple of pieces on Gordon Elliott in today's papers about the string that he's bringing to Cheltenham yeah. and and where he his place is in the sport back again.
0: Yeah, that was discussed as well. Look, I think it's something we'll come back to. I invited Paul in to discuss the issue at large uh, a number of months ago. You're more than welcome to come in any time and maybe treat it better than... Uh, g- give it a better treatment maybe than we've we've managed here because again, when it's part one and part two and another piece today and I'm sure lots of you haven't heard the podcast that Paul's talking about it's like, I, you know, it's impossible to bring everyone up to speed in the space of five minutes We'll have to leave it there Clina Foley, thanks so much for coming into the studio and Sarah Donovan, You're thanks welcome. so much for coming on as well Appreciate it
2: Thanks guys